Hi there to the Journey Church family. How's it going today? Memorial Day greetings to all of you, especially if you're a guest with us today. Maybe for the first time, we're delighted to have you and hope today is meaningful and significant and lasting for you. We're in this series that we call Becoming Spiritual Champions. Uh, We've been examining some of the traits, what it actually looks like real behaviorally to become a spiritual champion. Not just talking theory, but actually talking behavior. And this is the 10th and the next to last message in the series. Just one more after this one, which comes uh, next weekend. And the trait of spiritual championship that we want to examine today is this one. Spiritual champions donate unusually generous amounts of time and money to spiritually driven causes. Spiritual champions donate unusually generous amounts of time and money to spiritually driven causes. And I'm going to be real upfront about this message today. We're almost going to completely, uh, I think we are going to completely ignore the time side of that statement. And we're just going to spend our time together on the money side of that statement. On how we who are striving to become spiritual champions are invited and challenged by God to think about and conduct our giving habits and patterns. Now, uh, I want you to know, this is a little insight into me that is the pastor of Journey Church that... Uh, as we come to that time in the service, you know, near the end when we pass the blue offering bags, I want you to know there's a lot of stuff that plays through my head when we come to that point in the weekend worship services. I'm thinking about uh, all the time, I'm thinking about how I hope the guests who are in the room don't reduce everything that we're trying to be and do in the community to this one act of just passing the blue bag. How I hope that our guests never stereotype us with what happens in so much of Christian ministry that it's just all about the money, that the hands are always out more, more, more. I often think about how I hope that no one ever feels any pressure, any pressure to give. I think about uh, all the time how I hope that we all have a very clear understanding of what it means to worship God through our giving. It isn't just a little thing that we do. It's actually worship of God when we give. And then, because I've been a person who has sat where you sit in a church, uh, I know that you too are thinking about stuff when we come to that point in the weekend worship service when we pass those blue offering bags. Some of us, I know, feel pressure from some source. Some of us feel guilty. Some of us feel confused about what in the world we're even supposed to do when those blue offering bags pass by. Like, are we supposed to reach in and take something out or do we put stuff in there? Like, how, how does that work? Some of us are thinking about how incredibly grateful we are for every single thing that God has done in our lives to make it possible for us even to think about participating and worshiping God through our giving. I know that there are a lot of thoughts that fly around this room when it comes to the giving thing. I just know there is. And in all candor, we as a community called Journey Church, uh, we have not talked much about giving in our almost four-year existence. Sure, we've done a couple of capital campaigns. I did the math on it. I think those uh, two uh, capital campaigns took like a total of 10 weekends in the course of almost four years. But just in general, I have not led hard, nor have I led strong in the area of giving. Perhaps outside of inviting and challenging you to consider your role first in that land purchase several years ago, and then also in getting phase one put up on that campus this past fall. And that, just so you know, has been a very intentional act on my part and on part of our church leadership. Churches and Christian ministry in general has a stereotype in our culture, I referenced it a few moments ago, of always having their hand out. 
And I felt very strongly, our team felt very strongly, when we started Journey, that we wanted to counter that stereotype as much as possible. And so on a week-to-week, day-to-day basis, we have tried to strike a balance between being really honest about the fact that it takes dollars, it takes money, it takes resources to fulfill the vision that God has invited and challenged us as a community to take up, while at the same time making it crystal clear that this church called Journey exists because your soul matters to God. That's why we exist, and the souls of all people matter to God, not because we think people should be giving ever-increasing amounts of money to a church. That's not why we're here. And the truth be told, you sort of boil all that down, though. One of the signs of a healthy and mature and growing church is its ability to have really free, really open, really candid conversations about money. And the church works a lot like a family, frankly. And you know how in dysfunctional families, maybe you've been a part of one, how in dysfunctional families, you can't ever talk about money without it getting like defensive and emotional and everyone's powering up and he said and she said and you did and you didn't and all that stuff. It's the exact same deal with the church family. When we cannot, in honest and very straightforward fashion, talk about money, it's going to leave us growth-stunted, both individually and as a wider community, on both the spiritual and on the physical front. It's going to leave us short in the area of growth. I want to tell you that my studies this week of Uh, as I've prepared this message, they've been resourced by a couple of different guys. One guy named Brian Wilkerson, another guy named Brian Kluth, and so this is sort of a triple Brian collaboration that you've got here today with me in the mix. If you've got a Bible, just to start things out with a bang, flip open to Malachi 3, if you would. Malachi 3, one of the most pointed and poignant passages on giving, on tithing in the sacred text And this will just start us off with a bang. So here we go. Malachi 3, 6 to 12. I am the Lord and I do not change. This is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you ask, how can we return when we have never gone away? Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Now the book of Malachi, just by way of a little background, it's the last in a long string of Old Testament prophets. Malachi was the last in a long string of Old Testament prophets. And even the finest biblical scholars on the face of the earth do not know much about this guy named Malachi. We know that he preached and he served during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Those were days, by the way, of deep spiritual apathy in the nation of Israel. 
They had just got done spending 70 some years in exile in Babylon. They had finally returned to their land, the promised land. They had managed to scrape and scratch together enough resources to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That, by the way, was a huge step toward regaining some measure of national pride and strength and so on. And while things looked pretty good from the outside, politically and spiritually, the nation of Israel was just a shell of its former self. They were home in the physical sense of being home, but they were far from being home in the spiritual sense, a long way from God and where he would have them be. And at the very beginning of the book of Malachi, God is speaking through his prophet Malachi, confronting the sin of the people of Israel. The priests, they were doing silly things like offering God blemished sacrifices. These blind and crippled and diseased animals, they were keeping the best for themselves, not for God. There were a whole bunch of men in the nation of Israel who were leaving their wives, who were leaving their families, and running off and marrying pagan women from the region. The people of Israel, they were about exploiting the poor. They were about treating people unjustly. They were neglecting their responsibility to the widows and orphans who were in their care. And in just about every way that you can possibly imagine, it was a bleak season for the people and nation of Israel. And you hear all that, and you read stuff like we read in Malachi 3, and we go, man, I'll bet God was absolutely furious with his people. This incredibly poor behavior, and we go, glad I'm not them, right? I'll bet God has incredibly harsh words for that bunch. But look at what God says to them in Malachi 3, 7. Just here it is. Now return to me, and I will return to you. Now return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. God very, very graciously invites the people of Israel to repent That means, by the way, to just turn their backs on the way that they had been living and run, like full on run toward God, toward his priorities, toward his way of living. It is just exceeding grace that God is extending. God is not at all holding a grudge against his people. Despite the hypocrisy, unfaithfulness, injustice, mistreatment of people, God freely offers up his forgiveness very generously and he does the exact same thing with every single one of us today every single one of us today we think that sometimes we've pushed god's last button we think sometimes that we've piled on the final straw the straw that's going to break the camel's back so to speak we think so often that our road back to god has been cut off by our own mess that we have made but that is simply not the case It is not ever the case. All the Israelites needed to do to regain the favor of God was repent. Just stop. Just turn their backs on the way that they had been living and run toward God, run toward his priorities, run toward his way of living. And it works the exact same with all of us, every last one of us. In the second part of verse 7, the Israelites, they respond to God's offer of return to me and I will return to you. They respond. They ask a question. How can we return when we have never gone away? How can we return when we have never gone away? They're in essence asking God, what do you want from us, God? Now, 
Anytime anyone ever asks that kind of question, now God, what do you want from us? There are two ways that it can be asked, right? The first way is it's like, what do you want from us, God? Right? You, you could ask it that way. What do you want from uh, Our seven-year-old Bailey, she does that sometimes. I'll summon her. Hey, Bailey. And she says, what, Dad? I'm like, well, where did that come from? What, Dad? She's seven years old. I want to know who taught that to her. Give me a break. We're working on tone over at our house these days. We don't talk to each other like that. What, Dad? No. It has a cynical tone to it. It's harsh. It's ugly, I call it. It's just ugly. Or the second way that question can be asked is, what, God, do you want from us? What, God, do you want from us? All you have to do is tell us, and we're on it. We're absolutely on it. Just tell us, and we're on it. And Wilkerson, he offers that we can approach God in either of those same two ways when it comes to this giving deal. We just can we can approach our giving very cynically, very harshly, very, with an ugly tone about it. What more do you want from me, God? Haven't I done enough? Or we can approach our giving with this great and genuine sincerity. What, God, do you want from me? All you have to do is tell me, and I am on it. And when we examine this giving deal, it all, at the end of the day, boils down to an issue of heart surrender. It just all falls off. It all boils down to an issue of heart surrender. Every area of our lives submitted, surrendered to God, including our checkbook, including our wallet. You might have heard this story. Paul Harvey tells it. Uh, it was about a woman. She called the Butterball Turkey Hotline one November. There's actually such a thing, by the way. Maybe you've called it to receive a helpful hint for baking or cooking your Thanksgiving or Christmas turkey. And this lady, she'd been rummaging around in the bottom of her deep freeze, and she ran across this turkey that had been at the bottom of her freezer, forget this, 23 years. 23 years, this big old turkey right down there. And so she pulls it out, and she looks up the Butterball Turkey hotline, because it was a Butterball turkey, and she asks the representative who answered the phone if it would still be okay to eat the 23-year-old turkey for Thanksgiving. And the representative kindly reassured her that as long as it had been properly frozen, that it would still be safe to eat, but, the representative offered, that the flavor would have been so long gone that it just wouldn't be worth the effort. You may as well eat the wrapper, the representative said. That's what I thought, the woman said. I think I'll donate it to the church. <laughs> and we sort of cringe and we sort of laugh at that because it is quite humorous. But that's exactly the way a whole bunch of Christ followers approach this giving to God deal. We give the very minimum that we can get away with. We give what doesn't cost us anything. We give what's left over after we've done everything that we want to do. But that isn't the posture of a surrendered, yielded heart to God, is it? A surrendered heart asks God the question, what God do you want from me? All you have to do is tell me, and I'm on it. Because I want our relationship to be pure and right and unhindered and uninhibited by anything. Let's get back to the narrative from the text. The Israelites, remember, have just asked the question in verse 7, how can we return? And with the answer, God gets just a wee bit cagey. 
He doesn't answer the question outright. Look at Malachi 3.8. Should people cheat God, yet you have cheated me? He sort of answers the question uh, answers the question by asking a question. Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. And the New Living renders it that way, but the NIV says it a little better in my view. Will a man rob God, he says, yet you rob me? And then the people of Israel, they respond to God by saying, uh, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? And then at the bottom of Malachi 3.8, God says, you've cheated me of the tithes and offerings that are due to me. See, God's saying here, look, nation of Israel, you have not brought their, your full tithe to the Lord. You have not brought the 10% that I have instructed you to give. Thereby, they were giving to God less than he had asked them for, much less. Now, you've all at some point in your life heard a story about a thief who broke into a church and stole, right? And you hear those stories and you get all like fired up, right? It just happens. Churches are not off limits to thieves breaking in and stealing. A few years ago, as a matter of fact, our church over in Missoula, it's called Shek, it got broken into and these 19-year-old kids, they went in and they stole money and stuffed their pockets with all kinds of money that they found laying around and electronic equipment and, and they squirted off fire extinguishers in the place, several thousand dollars worth of damage. It was fantastic though because the police walked right in on them. Like there they were, caught literally red-handed, they said, right? And so these thieves, they broke into our church in Missoula and we hear that and we're like, nah, that's wrong. We get angry, sort of viscerally angry. Uh, now, just so you know, I don't have time to finish the story here, but uh, just Google it. Sheck, Church, Missoula, robbery, something like that, because CNN and Fox News and even the BBC picked up on this. They did interviews with the pastoral staff there uh, because it turned out to be incredibly redemptive, and I want you to know the rest of the story, so uh, a little homework for you. Take that up, if you will. And we hear stories like Church is getting broken into it. It makes us incredibly angry. Like stealing is bad, right? When we get stolen from, it's bad. But stealing from a church or stealing from God, that's some kind of new low, right? But Malachi says, look, by not giving to God what he asks us to give, we're robbing him. We're robbing God. We do the exact same thing that those kids in Missoula did that makes us so viscerally angry. We rob from God. And I missed this, to be honest. I completely missed this next little thing I'm going to talk to you about. I only got it after I read something that Wilkerson wrote. He says, look, here's this nation. Here's the people of Israel. They're guilty of all of the very worst kinds of sin. They're exploiting the poor. They're maritally unfaithful. There's spiritual adultery happening all over the place. They're treating people unjustly. They're neglecting their responsibility to widows and orphans. And you see, the very first thing that God does, the very first thing that God asks them to do on the road back to a right relationship with him is to give tithes and offerings to him. It's the very first thing God asks them to do. Now you and I both know, all know, that there are a whole lot of correctives God could have offered to the nation of Israel. Stop chasing pagan wives. Do justice and love mercy. Stop mistreating people, etc., etc. But notice, he does not do that. While making those other things right with God matters to him, the very first thing he tells them to do is take up an offering. Give to me. Get the giving thing right. 
Why? Why in the world would God do that? Because God absolutely knows when people stop cheating him and robbing him and start giving generously and obediently, all, and I mean all, of those other areas of our lives will order themselves accordingly after the desires of God himself, see. Jesus knew and he understood that principle very clearly. He said as much, Matthew 6, 21. Here's what the Bible says. Wherever your treasure is, you know this verse, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Notice that our heart follows our treasure. Our heart follows our treasure. The way that any of us appropriates our money not only reveals the condition of our hearts, it actually determines the condition of our hearts. Let me say that again. The way that any of us appropriates our money not only reveals the condition of our hearts, it determines the condition of our hearts. This is absolutely huge for we who are on the road toward spiritual championship. It is not about the money at the end of the day. It's about our hearts being rightly ordered after God's priorities. It's about our desire as a community to live lives that are fully and completely devoted to God, completely surrendered to Him. And Malachi, he talks about these things called tithes and offerings. So what is that? Let's sort of break that down a bit. The tithe, first, was the primary giving unit of the Old Testament. The tithe represented simply one-tenth of a person's income, which was to be given back to God, in essence. It comes out of the command in Leviticus 27, 30. One-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. Now, this tithe deal was non-negotiable. Part of the Israelites, it was part of the Israelites' covenant with and to God. The tithe was to be given first, right off the top, before anything else was kept for oneself. Now, what did they use the tithe for? It funded the work of the temple. That's why it was given. The tithe covered the total living expenses of the entire tribe of the Levites, they were called, who served in the temple, plus the priests in addition to the Levites. One scholar estimates that actually upwards of 80% of the tithing income just went to what we would call personnel, salaries and living expenses and so on. The remainder of the tithe went toward furnishing the temple and funding its ministry. The tithe of the people of Israel funded the temple's, call it general fund, if you will, the day-to-day ministries and operations and expenses of the temple, all of its ministries. A guy named Dr. Douglas Stewart, he says this, 10% of the nation of Israel's wealth would be needed for a full worship system to prosper. 9% would not do, nor would any other number short of the full one-tenth. Less than the tithe was unacceptable and represented a kind of starving of the nation's worship, starving of the community's worship. Now I know that there are an awful lot of Christians out there in the world today who do not ever want their giving dollars to go toward the support of the general fund of their church. They don't like their money funding, quote, overhead, like utility bills and rent and kids' ministry curriculum, even salaries, for that matter. Many Christians would much rather give directly to ministries and to departments that are less about overhead and more about global evangelism and helping the poor. 
But get this, the tithe as it was established by God was for the purpose of funding all worship and all ministry of God's people in community. And today, just like in Malachi's day, it takes the tithe of our communities, the tithe of our congregation's income, to support the ministry of our church. And get this, God never says, he never says that utility bills or rent or kids' ministry curriculum or salaries, for that matter, are any more or any less important to his kingdom than money that we give to reach people in Africa or money that we give to feed people, under-resourced people in our own town. He just doesn't ever say that. And when a community, when a church holds back the tithe, the ministry of that community, the ministry of that congregation literally starves. So there's the tithe deal. Now let's talk about offerings. What in the world are those? Offerings are above and beyond giving to God, above and beyond even the 10%, above and beyond the tithe. Offerings were often used to meet a special need, supporting widows and orphans, a building project even, maybe uh, just a gift that expresses gratitude and thanksgiving to God, trust in Him as provider. And God says, look, give both tithes and offerings and do it very generously. The tithe goes to support the ongoing ministry of the temple, the community of Christ followers. The offerings are used to meet special needs. God says, look, anything less than that is cheating. It's robbing me. And lots of people say, all right, Brian, that's Old Testament stuff. It's all over there, the left side of the book. But does God still invite and challenge us today to give the tithe, to give offerings? And the answer is absolutely yes, a resounding yes. Absolutely. You're right. The New Testament of the Bible does not specifically teach tithing. And some people go like, well, why in the world not if God seems to place such a high emphasis on it over in the Old Testament? There's a few reasons for that. First, God wants our giving to him to be inspired by love. Law never feels fun, does it? Law never feels life-giving. Law feels, well, it feels like law, doesn't it? God wants us to give to him generously out of this love-filled relationship, not just obligatory, I gotta do this kind of thing. God wants our giving to him to be inspired by our love for him. Second, tithing was already the default position for giving to God, see. New Testament Christ followers, they were born and raised as tithers. It's just who they were. It's what they did. It was just part of their culture and nature and their upbringing. Third, Honestly, tithing is far too limiting. Honestly. Tithing is far too limiting. The tithe deal was the floor for giving. The 10% deal was the floor for giving, not the ceiling for giving. If people used to give 10% under the old covenant when it was mandated by law, why wouldn't they want to give more under the new covenant as a response to all of God's grace? And that's exactly what we see the earliest Christ followers doing. In Acts, for example, they sold possessions to support one another in the ministry, and they kept, in many instances, none of it for themselves, none of the proceeds for themselves. They brought it all in, dumped it at the apostles' feet, and said, here, bring, bring, build, be about the kingdom of God with this. 
There's not an overt emphasis on tithing in the New Testament because for a whole bunch of people, that 10% thing is not sufficient to express their gratitude, to express their commitment to God. And while the New Testament does not command tithing, it does clearly teach us to give proportionately, to give a percentage of our income. Look at 1 Corinthians 16.2. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money that you have earned. And now, just like then, that tithe, that 10%, is frankly a reasonable and biblical starting place to determine the percentage that we're going to give to this day. Now, that's all quite ethereal, right? It's sort of out there, like, okay, understand the theory, but let's bring the theory right home to roost. We did a little looking this week, and we found that the median household income for Bozeman is $55,500 per year. Household income, median, $55,500 per year. That means that the tithe on $55,500 would be $5,500 a year given to the Lord's work. That's about 105 bucks a week, about 450 bucks a month. And I know that lots and lots of people think that by tossing a 10 or a 20 dollar bill into the offering bag when it goes by is being quite generous. Maybe a little extra they throw in at Christmas time for some special project or something. But get this, that 10 or 20 dollars a week for most of us is just a fraction of the level of generosity and giving that the Lord is inviting and challenging us to. And as I say that, I want it to be very, very clear that this tithe deal is not a law to this day. It is not a law to this day. God may certainly have something else in heart and mind for you. He might be asking you very clearly to give something other, something different than the tithe. That is fine. Please hear me say that very clearly. The challenge, though, from the Lord is to figure out what that is for you, what that is for your family. You can do that by talking to the Lord about it, by asking him, Lord, what would you have me to do? By talking it over with a spiritually mature friend, by settling on an amount that you're going to give regularly. Now, granted, for some people, 10% is just, frankly, way too much. If you struggle with providing the basics for your family— Maybe your spouse is not a Christ follower and does not even come close to sharing your conviction to give money away, then 10% is probably way out of line for you, for your family. God's invitation, though, is to find a percentage and land there and stick there and just walk it out, just give it. Now, on the other side of that coin is there might be some of us for whom 10% is just far too little. Our challenge is the exact same. Find a percentage that works and then just give it. Just do it. Now we talk about giving. We talk about tithing and offerings and so on. It always raises sort of these nitty-gritty level questions. And so let's just press into a few of those. First one is this one. Should we tithe off the net or the gross? Should we tithe off the net or the gross? My answer, I don't know. Honestly, I do not know. It's simply a question that you ought to take up with the Lord and see what he would ask and invite you to do. It's a you and God thing. I don't know. Uh, should we tithe when we're in debt is often a question that's raised. My answer is absolutely yes, we should. Why? Because tithing honors God. Tithing invites God's blessing on our lives. You'll see that in just a moment. 
it's also, this giving deal, is the first step toward financial health. Why? Because your heart follows your treasure. It just does. Should we tithe when it means that we would have to borrow money? My answer is absolutely yes. And when any of us needs to leverage debt for a house or for school or for a car, our tithing, our giving, should be off limits as part of our repayment strategy. It's sort of untouchable is the way we think about it. Where do I give? It's a very common question. Who do I give to or do I give? There are so many worthy causes, so many worthy ministries, so much financial need out there. Where do we give? I want to show you something. In Malachi 3, that storehouse that is referenced in Malachi, the storehouse is the temple, right? Today, the temple is the community of Christ followers. It is the church. So God is saying, support your home church first. Bring the tithe, bring some of your offerings into the storehouse of your church community. Then give offerings above and beyond all of that very generously to other ministries, other organizations, and so on. Be about generosity is what God says. And then I talked about the blessing piece of this in just a moment. God says, look, uh, bring the tithe, bring the offering into the storehouse. And then he attaches something to the end of all of that. Here's what he says, Malachi 3.10. If you do, if you give, if you tithe, if you obey, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test, God says. And if you've been around the Bible very much, you will quickly notice that very, very, very seldom in the Bible does God invite us and challenge us to test him. And here's one of the very, very rare occasions when he does just that, when it comes to this issue of giving, when it comes to this issue of tithing and offering. God's saying, just try me. Try it. Try tithing and see if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour out my blessing on you now. I want it to be very, very clear that that blessing that God is talking about is not the return of piles and piles and piles of money because you chose to give and give and give. Not even close. You all know that there is a set of Christianity out there that offers giving to God as a sort of get-rich-quick scheme. If you give, God will give back. I want you to hear it very clearly that God's blessing does not just come in the form of finances. His blessing can take all other kinds of shapes and sizes. It can come in the form of finances. Not promised. Not at all promised. His blessing can look like a lot, and I mean a lot, of other things. This giving deal is not a get-rich-quick scheme. It is not even close. As a community called Journey Church, God has given us an incredible vision, hasn't he? To be a part of reaching people who are far from God, to be a part of growing them up in Christ. And I want you to know, lots of you have a sense for this, but I want you to know that from where I sit, we're just scratching the surface of what God is asking us to do and what God is asking us to be a part of. Increasing amounts of no-strings-attached outreach and service into our community, for example. Increasing amounts of investment in our children, in our student ministries. Increasing amounts of investment in our mentoring and in our marriage and in our discipleship ministries. 
increasing amounts of investment in leadership development, increasing the water level of leadership around here, getting those simulcast campuses up and running, Big Sky first, possibly Livingston next. And in this one uh, is a surprise to all of us, uh, least of all me. Uh, we're in conversation, very early in conversation, with some folks in Glendive who would like to start a campus of Journey Church in Glendive, Montana, of all places. Can you believe that? It's not hell, but you can see it from there. I love Glendive. Increasing amounts of, I'm kidding, okay? Just for the record, I'm totally kidding. Increasing amounts of investment in the Ethiopia Hope Initiative and what God is asking us to do there, adopting children and helping children, the poor, the least of these in Ethiopia. And you look at all of that stuff and you go, look, that all equates to more and more and more people coming to faith in Christ, more and more and more people growing up in their faith in Christ. But for that stuff to come to fruition, we who are the Journey Church community will have to be in a constantly evaluative mode, a constant evaluative mode of our giving to God's work. Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to give? God, are you nudging me to increasing levels of giving to you and to your kingdom? And God says, just test me. Just try it and see if I don't pour out my blessing upon you. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would. And I just invite you to close your eyes and go to prayer and just speak to the God about what you're thinking about. I invite you to do that now. And in this time, I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you would, please. And just take up these matters with the Lord. And I know we all show up in a room like this coming from different places. None of us are coming from the same place. God that question God what would you have me to do what's the answer that you hear coming back at you what would you have me to do with regard to my giving God and maybe you're a person who this giving deal is all brand new to you I think your challenge today is to just start somewhere Seems like that 10% place is a great place to start. Just start there. Start with the tithe. And maybe you're a person who's been a regular giver for a long, long time, but you sense the Lord responding to your question of what would you have me to do by nudging you that you've been giving at a level that's less than the Lord's asking of you. Ask him, Lord, what would you have me to do? If 10% is too much for you, that's okay. God's prompt is to start somewhere and move in that direction. Start somewhere. And maybe you're here and you're a giver. You've been giving for a long, long time, and you've just been giving at that 10% level because it was right. But maybe your reality is that you could give much more than that. What's the Lord challenging you to increase your giving to? 
No matter where you are today in all of that, would you just seek the Lord's face on that? Lord, what would you have me to do? And God, we hear this sort of stuff from your word and we're challenged. Keeping our hearts in a place of full surrender to you is a difficult day-by-day, often minute-by-minute challenge. And Lord, at the end of the day, in the face of all of that, we want to please you and we want to honor you and we want to be a blessing to you and to your kingdom. We would like not to be accused of being robbers of you. So God, would you just speak straight into our hearts about what you would have us to do? And that whatever level of giving you've challenged us to, or maybe just walk that out. Maybe just obey and trust and depend. You're our provider ultimately. It's not us. You're it. You're the source for everything that we have, everything that we will have. It comes from you. God and so we cling to that truth and we as a community commit to just walk that out God to just obey you to just follow you to hold it all up very loosely and say Lord it's yours what would you have me to do and God may your kingdom come through our gifts through our offerings through our tithes, God, may your kingdom come on earth just as it is in heaven. Thank you for your challenge. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for its ability to penetrate to the core of who we are, God. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray this. And the church said, amen.